we pray, amen. Amen. All right, good morning. Uh, if you're from Church 21 or you're visiting with us, uh, my name is Dustin. I'm one of the pastors of Reach Montreal. And it is an absolute privilege to um, open up God's word and uh, speak with you this morning. And I really hope that this will not just kind of um, compel us out this week, but, but also uh, that, that we would all leave here different than the way that we came. Uh, today's a big day, if you, if you didn't know. I mean, today's a day where an Easter bunny runs around and pulls off thousands of B&Es and plants delectable treats in your cupboards and places that you need to find. No, just kidding. But that's kind of what we've, we've turned it into. But today is a big day for us on the Christian calendar. This is actually the central aspect of the Christian faith, right? The resurrection of Jesus. Everything about the Christian faith, the morality, the ethics, the mission, principles, all of that rises or falls on this aspect right here. And three-quarters of all historians and biblical scholars agree that Jesus of Nazareth lived a life, died by Roman crucifixion, and his tomb was found empty three days later. Now, what's really important is why the tomb was empty. What we believe about that kind of has everything hinging on it. What you believe about why the tomb was empty matters very, very deeply. Was it just an elaborate ploy by his disciples? Was it some trick played by Rome, or the Jesus in fact, as thousands of eyewitnesses claimed and as billions across the planet earth today confessed, did he actually rise from the dead to offer life so full that pain, suffering, grief, mourning, tears, and death itself would not get the last word. That's what we're celebrating today. And we don't have all, a bunch of time to get into all the historical pieces. We probably won't touch too much on that this morning, but if you're here and you're skeptical, about people dying and staying dead, that's a reasonable thing to think, amen? <laughs> like the, the, the mortality rate, like hovers around 100%, like today, right? It did then, and it does now, okay? So that's really important to make sure that we, we actually, there's, there's historical precedent, there's historical things worth looking on, and if you haven't done that yet, haven't done that hard work, don't try not to just dismiss it as a fairy tale, but actually look at some of the circumstantial and historical evidence as to why billions across the planet today confess and profess that Jesus Christ is more alive than ever, because something happened that morning. Something happened that morning. And a few hundred years after that morning, half of the Roman Empire worshipped Jesus as Lord instead of Caesar. And today, despite the secular kind of modern myth that God is dead, or God is irrelevant, or God is passe, Christianity is expanding at staggering rates across the globe, especially in non-Western contexts. Why? Well, because us Westerners, we're so progressive and reasonable because, duh, science. But the rest of the globe still has a space for God's foot in the door. And they're still encountering not just a religious belief system, not just philosophies that help us live our best life, but they're actually encountering the risen Christ. May the same thing be said of us today. May the same thing happen in this room this morning so that when we go out of here, that is what bursts into our city. That's what overtakes our province. That's what goes across this nation from coast to coast. Are you with me on that? That's what we need. We don't just need an improvement on this life. We need a brand new life altogether. And that is exactly what is on offer this morning. And there's a lot riding on this. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, guess what that means? 
that what we believe and the story that we live out doesn't matter unless it's in line with what he said. And if he actually did raise, that means that everything else that he claimed is true. You with me on that? Everything he said about life and death and eternity and the past is true. Everything that he says about sexuality and morality and ethics and identity and, and value and purpose and destiny, that's true too. And so there's a lot riding on this. Because if Jesus is not raised, we can agree with the Apostle Paul who wrote in the first century in 1 Corinthians 15 that if he is not raised, then your faith is futile and we are still dead in our sins. So, here's what we're going to look at. If you've been around for a little while, both Church 21 and Reach Montreal, we've been kind of spent, I think, like seven years in the Gospel of Mark. Just kidding. It's been about like two and a half years of interruptions, okay? But we're going to finish the Gospel of Mark today looking specifically at his biography and what Mark does with the resurrection because he does something extremely unique compared to the other Gospels. And it's actually confused biblical scholars and historians for a long, long time. So, I've arrived. I'm here to clear it up for us. Okay? Just kidding. <laughs> a bunch of nerds did this before us and I'm just relying on them, all right? But Mark does something really interesting with how he tells us about the resurrection. It's not only the shortest telling of the resurrection in the New Testament, but it's also the most abrupt. And it feels wrong. Like, so many people have read it and gone, no. Like, there's got to be like a manuscript that was like cut off somewhere, right? Like, there's got to be something that is missing. Mark forgot, or he got sleepy like mid-sentence, right? And forgot to finish his story. So there's something that feels very uneasy about how Mark does this because it feels like it's an ending without an ending. And I would say I think that it's very intentional that he does this. Why? Because he wants all of his hearers and readers to sit with the implications of the resurrection. What he wants us to avoid is for the resurrection just to be told as a story and us go, cool story, bro. That's neat. He actually leaves it open-ended. He kind of ends with a cliffhanger so that we are forced into some of the discomfort of what if this is true? What are the implications of this being true? Did this actually happen? Because people stay dead. And if it did happen, what does it mean? And how should I live in light of it? I think that these are some of the questions that Mark is allowing us to tease out as he kind of ends the gospel without an ending. All right, so let's read it. Chapter 16, verse 1 through 8 in the gospel of Mark. So when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they could go and anoint Jesus' body. So on the Sabbath, they couldn't go because everything's closed, right? So they waited until the Sabbath was over that night. And they're like, okay, tomorrow morning, we're going to go and we're going to apply this to Jesus' body because they didn't have a chance to do it. So very early in the, in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? So I just love how, like, human the Bible is sometimes because, like, they're on their way there and they're like, oh, no. Oh, wait. Who's going to open it for us? Like, like, they're halfway there, they've got the spices, they've spent all their money, and now they're just realizing, like, oh no, we can't move that thing, right? So I love that. Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which they're already worried about, was very large. They ha it had already been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. No kidding. Don't be alarmed. 
I love it. It's like, no, no, but I am, right? Like, don't be afraid. But I am afraid, okay? He told them, you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, but he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. He's gone, right? But go, tell his disciples, and especially Peter, because Peter's hard of hearing, and he has to hear this, okay? He stresses, like, make sure Peter hears this, right? He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. So they went out, and they ran from the tomb. (laughs) Because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. The end. So this week, like, th- this is how uncomfortable I was. Like, just sitting, I'm just like, the end? Like, what, what do you, they were afraid so they didn't tell anyone. And it's like, well, but we do know that they did eventually tell somebody because we're sitting right here telling the exact same life-giving story of the power of the resurrection. So we know that, we don't know how long the, the ladies sat on it and didn't share it, but they like fled from it. They're like, I don't know who that cat in white was talking to us. I don't know why Jesus' body is gone. They showed up wondering, how can we get this stone out of the way? They left confused as to who got the stone out of the way, and they're just completely bewildered and confused. The end. That's where Mark leaves us. And he doesn't answer so many of the questions that I have. As a natural skeptic, I have so many questions here, right? It's like, well, what, what evidence do we actually have that Jesus rose? How do we know that it wasn't just his body being tampered with? If he did raise, how did he do it? What did he look like? Right? <laughs> what were his sandals like post-resurrection compared to pre-resurrection? Like, these are the things I stay up late thinking about. What does it mean if he did resurrect? Who can actually corroborate this evidence if he did? And why should we believe this at all? Mark doesn't answer any of those questions for us. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask them. And I think that that's where we find the power in Mark's ending. It's strange at first glance, but I think that it's in its subtlety and in its open-endedness that we actually see its power. So remember, let's go all the way back to seven years ago when we started Mark. Why did Mark write his gospel? What is Mark's entire purpose? His first sentence of the gospel is, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The entire purpose of the gospel is that you and I would see Jesus. That we would see him clearly. Not like third party, pass it on, broken telephone Jesus, but raw, organic Jesus, real Jesus for who he says he is and who many claim that he is. That's why Mark writes. I think that this is a perfect ending for the way that Mark began. Because all through the book, people are perplexed and confused and challenged by Jesus. If you think that Jesus is just kind of a nice, like, religious teacher to be admired and think, that's cool, that's nice, you don't know Jesus. Because all throughout the gospel, you are either floored by who he is in awe and wonder of who he is, and you drop to your knees and worship him as God and king, or you kill him. Because he's messing with your thing. Because what he teaches about politics doesn't mesh with your thing. Because what he teaches about morality doesn't mesh with your thing. Or because you already have an idea of what God or gods are like and Jesus doesn't fit into your thing. All throughout the gospel, that's the only two choices that we have. And then Mark ends like this. And I think he finishes his biography of Jesus like this with the same question that he began with. Who is this? (laughs) Who can do this? And I love the ladies at the tomb in the morning there. 
because the awe and confusion and fear is captured by them at the tomb. The first eyewitnesses are confused and afraid. That struck me this week. They're afraid. Like they're not like walking there with spices going, we're going to go see the resurrection now. Come on, Dora. Backpack. Like it says, like, no, no, like what? Like they're not going there expecting resurrection. They're going there because Jesus is dead and people stay dead. Are you with me on that? Like we're tracking, right? Okay, so that's why they're going. Like they're going there because they're mourning the loss of their friend and teacher. And frankly, somebody that they had put all of their hope in. They came to believe on Jesus. They came to believe that what he says is true. And they put all of his hope, their hope in Jesus. And they're deflated. They're crushed. So we've got to sit with that. We've got to be honest. We've got to be more human, I think, about some of the time that we come to the Bible and read this. Because they're afraid, confused, and in awe. And they have no idea what to do except for, I guess we listen to the guy in white and we go to Galilee. What's interesting about the other Gospels in the New Testament is that the eyewitnesses to the tomb, they, they see the evidence, and they immediately come up with an explanation. Right? And this is what we do, right? Like, see something happen, and you immediately come up with an explanation. The body's gone. Oh, somebody stole it. That's reasonable. Say, so, okay, so maybe somebody stole the body. That's a reasonable explanation. Mark gives us no explanation. And I think he does that on purpose. He doesn't have one, because this isn't explainable. This is something that is supranatural. This is something that is beyond all categories, and it aligns perfectly with who Jesus says he is. And I love that one explanation they don't have when they go and see the empty tomb in the Gospels is resurrection. Right? C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. When we look back on people that came before us, because again, we're so progressive and so enlightened, that we look back on people before us and be like, silly dum-dums believing resurrection, right? It's like, they weren't going there going like, yeah, resurrection's a thing. And they don't go there, see the empty tomb, and walk away and go, he must have resurrected. They walk away going, where in the world is his body? And Jesus warns them and tells them several times throughout the Gospel of Mark that he's going to do exactly this. And that's why the little boy in white, whoever he is, Mark doesn't tell us, that's fun, just, just says, he already told you this, remember? And I think the ladies are walking away from the tomb going, oh, oh, he did. Like hindsight's twenty twenty now, it's just like, oh yeah, oh yeah, and not, that, not, not that they lived in chapters, but they're like, yeah, he did it in, he did it in chapter 8, he did it in chapter, he did it in chapter 10. He does it in every single chapter leading us up to Mark 16. And every single time he does it, Peter or one of the other uh, disciples put their foot in their mouth and tell Jesus to stop it. Like, no, Jesus, you're not silly, you're not going to die. Like, you're the king, you're going to reign. Kings don't die, they rule. So hindsight's 20-20 here, and we see this kind of like bewilderment here. And it's a very human reaction. I see a lot of humanness here. I see a lot of raw emotion. I see mourning. I think we see grieving. I see, we see that they're crushed by the loss of their friend and rabbi. And often crisis has a way of reminding us that we're vulnerable. Amen? Crisis has a way of reminding us that we're not as in control as we think we are. That, that we are mere mortals, that, that there's a fragility, that we're not promised tomorrow. And many of us, and it's been, there's been a lot of loss in the last two years in our churches and in our culture. And we have a lot of us that are still in that, that we're not, we haven't quite shaken the loss and the grief and the exposure to our own fragility and those that we love. 
But before we move on past that too quickly, we have to understand that our Western secular culture does nothing to equip us to even consider our fragility. The only thing that our Western culture can give us is either we fear death or we ignore it. That's all it can give us. We either fear it and don't know what to do so we're paralyzed and we have no answers for it or we ignore it and it comes to us in an untimely way or we just entertain ourselves to death because live your truth and you deserve it, have some me time until you get leathery on a beach and die. That's all our culture offers us. That's it. There's no answer for this other than fear it or ignore it. Psychologists say that our number one fear is death. The death of ourself or the death of our loved ones. It's so unknown. It's the great equalizer. It's the one thing that we cannot control or sanitize. So to cope, we just stay distracted. We stay entertained. We stream more. We binge more. And we just live for the moment as if it's not our last moment. And there's something so humbling about our fragility here. And I think that the women at the tomb are racked with all of that. Experts say that we live in a culture of fear. That's bad, right? Like if you're going to like describe postmodern Western culture and the word you're going to use is fear and anxiety, you know we're not doing something right. Like, like something's not working. We're the wealthiest nation and people group on the history of planet Earth and we're also the most addicted, depressed, and medicated. Something's not working. And I think there's something so important about that because our culture of fear and anxiety, can t whether it's Twitter or global crises or politics or the wrong candidate or the right candidate or diet, God forbid, you eat what? Gluten? Hell. <laughs> Parenting, career, singleness, marriage, date, everything is like fear. And if we don't like nail it, like if we don't get everything exactly right, doom. <laughs> so what do we do? Well, we cling to things that give us safety. We cling to things that give us security, even if temporary. Because at least temporarily, it keeps fear at bay. Am I the only one? The most common fears, some of them are funny, others are not. Heights, needles, paper cuts. Oh, yeah. Amen. Suffocation, worst Mice, yuck, sickness, flying, drowning, dentists, yes, dark, the dark, and crowds, public speaking, and baldness. <laughs> I live racked with fear every day, every single time I get up here. Crowds, public speaking, and baldness. I need the resurrection, family. <laughs> you can pray for me. And culturally, we're like simultaneously fascinated by fear, but also like repelled by it, right? Like why do we keep making the same horror movie over and over and over again? <laughs> right? Because we like being scared. Like there's something about that. Or just watching like ungodly amounts of YouTube and TikTok videos of people getting like jump scared, right? Like we love it because there's something like fascinating about fear, but also something so like repelling and shocked by it. And the Bible speaks about fear a ton actually. That's what's really interesting. 
could it be that the Bible actually speaks into this because it's not just our culture's issue, but there's something about the human identity that we are actually racked by fear unless we have a greater thing that is able to silence those fears. It's all over Scripture. And all throughout the gospel resurrection narratives, the main word used is fear. Not like excitement, not celebration, not chocolate, right? Like fear. That's pretty amazing. I was shocked by that this week as I studied. The Bible speaks about fear a ton, but not all fear is equal. Not all fear is the same. There is healthy fear that leads you to kind of like a humbled mortality and fragility. It changes what you do with now because you don't know when your now will end. That's a healthy fear. There's an unhealthy fear. There's a sinful fear as well because fear can paralyze. Fear can lead us away from God. If you remember the Genesis narrative, when sin enters the picture, what's the first thing humans do? Well, they run from God. Why? Because they're afraid of him. Why are they afraid of him? Because they don't trust him. Because they've already come up with another definition of what is right and good and true. And they're going to trust themselves instead of God. Does that sound familiar? I mean, that is, that is the teleprompter of our culture. Live your truth, trust yourself, do you, then die, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what the end is that, of that, right? Like, I just don't, I don't see the telos. I don't see the end point of that. But we've got to work backwards and understand that there is healthy and unhealthy fear. Like we're rightfully fearful about car accidents because car accidents are bad. That's a, that's a, it's a, it's like a different fear than a roller coaster, right? Very, very different types of fear. And the Bible speaks kind of like really widely about them. So be careful in, like, in your English reading because you come across some of these verses and you're like, what? Like why is that there? A few examples. Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You're like, what? Like, I have to fear God? Why would I have to fear God in order to know stuff? That sounds weird, right? Psalm 33, 8. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. It's like, oh, that's what he wants, our grudging fear. He just wants us to be like, we're so afraid of you, God. 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And you're like, what? Now you're getting like more confused, right? You're just like, what's going on? One more example. Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. You're like, no, it's not. Like, being afraid is not a fountain of life at all. It's a fountain of death and darkness, right? But here's the thing. The Bible speaks about this in lots of different ways. It has kind of like multiple dimensions that we can't see sometimes in just kind of like the word fear. Being afraid of God is not the same as fearing God. There's a difference there. Fear of the Lord, as it's used throughout the Bible, is being in awe of him. It's being struck with wonder. It's being like having this significant insignificance in his presence. is knowing that we can't control or define or box him in. That's a healthy fear of God. An unhealthy fear is that you think you'll make a better God than he is, so you run. An unhealthy fear is you try to grudgingly obey him and do all the moral things or the social things or the political things that you think will work so that maybe he'll accept you. An unhealthy fear. Not a biblical fear. And I think it's amazing that fear is the reaction and the most common emotion experienced at the tomb. Because fear speaks about something we value. We say crazy things in Christian circles. We're like, we're really weird. I don't know if you guys know that. If you're not a Christian here, let's, we're just outing ourselves, okay? But like we, see, say, like we sing whole songs of like, fear is a liar. It's like, what? Like, what? I don't know about that. Like, spider, afraid, squash spider. 
Like that fear told me the truth. Just get rid of the spider or else my wife will not want to be married to me, right? Like that's a healthy fear. <laughs> I don't know, we, we do weird things with fear, but I actually think fear does speak, but I think it speaks about things that we value. We fear death because we value life. We fear failure because we value success and, and achievement. We fear rejection because, or, or being unloved because we value belonging. We value safety. We fear the loss of, of loved ones because we love and value them. We fear sickness because we value health and well-being. So I don't think it's fair to just be like, let's just sing Christian songs with G and C and D and say fear is a liar, right? Like, <laughs> I think there's something more to that. Ed Welch uh, in a book called Running Scared says, anytime you love or want something deeply, you will notice fear and anxiety because you might not get them. I think he's right. I think fear can actually remind us of an important truth. That we're not in control. That we're not self-made. That we're needy by design. And if we listen closely to our fear, I think fear says more than anything, I'm not in control. I'm vulnerable. There's unexpected and uncontrollable things. There's so many variables that are not in my control. And here... The women at the tomb stay quiet. Why? What's the last word? Because they were afraid. They stay quiet because they were afraid. In John, in John's gospel, Jesus has to go find them because they're hiding. Like they're hiding because they're afraid. Why is this important? Well, here's how I want us to apply it and think about it today. Because even on this side of the empty tomb, church, there's still fear. And there's still doubt. And there's still tension, and there's still grief, and there's still pain, and there's still confusion. So you know what that means for you and I? That we're in good company. That we're in good company. That even on this side of the empty tomb, we still have to sift through and work through how do we practice resurrection? How do we actually apply the resurrection? How do we actually know the power of the resurrection? I think this is why do, be not afraid or do not be afraid is one of the most repeated commands in all of Scripture. 366 times we're told not to be afraid. That's one for every day of the year plus one for a day where you need it twice, right? Do not be afraid. Now, that's a weird command, right? Parents, have you ever told your kids to go to sleep? How does that work out for you? Go to sleep. You know, what? It's like, don't be afraid. It's like, yeah, but I am, right? Like, that, that's, that's what... The little boy in the white says, it's just like, like, don't be afraid. They're like, yeah, but I am. And then they just run, right? Like, commanding something like an emotion of do not be afraid has to be followed with a reason why I shouldn't. You with me on that? Like, if it's not, then it's just an empty words. It's just completely empty words. And I don't think that's what it is. I actually think all throughout Scripture, almost always, it's followed up with God's presence. It's do not be afraid because I am with you. Do not be afraid because I have gone before you. Do not, be af do not be afraid because I have always known you and I knit you together in your mother's womb and I've called you by your name. Do not be afraid. No, no, but what if I'm not good enough? Do not be afraid because I've already laid my life down for you. No, 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 but what if I, it doesn't like balance out at the end? It's not gonna balance out at the end anyway. I've already paid the debt for you. Do not be afraid. But what about my kids? What if they don't turn out okay? Do not be afraid. 
That starts to mean something far deeper when it's followed up by a promise of God's presence and his faithfulness. For God to say, I'm closer than you think. I'm available. I'm here. And I think that's exactly why Mark leaves us here. He zooms in on the confusion. He zooms in on the fear and the uncertainty of the eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. Because he's trying to show us that true power comes from human weakness. It comes from complete and utter dependence upon the God who created us. Not being self-actualized and not going out and and just living our self-fulfilled definition of life, but actually seeing a self-denial in our own weakness so that God can be the one who empowers us. I think that's why Mark does it. This is where we get to see that the gospel is not just helpful information, but that is a beautiful invitation. That resurrection life isn't just a pipe dream that Christians talk about once a year and get all excited about. It's not just a pipe dream for the future that, oh yeah, I mean, we all just kind of end up in a better place. But it's something that, it's a reality that's actually available right now. That, That this new life, that this new life in Jesus is available to everyone who would lay down their old life. So to hear it, just simply, resurrection is for the crucified. New life is for those who would say, I'm going to put my old life away. That's the message of the empty tomb. That's the message of the gospel. That's why Jesus' invitation all throughout the gospels as he's teaching and traveling and doing what he's doing is always, come with me. Come on. Follow me. Come with me. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross daily and come with me. Where was he going, church? Where was he headed? He was headed to his death. But what he was trying to show us is that the worst thing will not be the last thing. Amen. The worst thing will not be the last thing. The grief, the mourning, the confusion, the awe that they're left with, the fear that they are left with. He's saying, come with me to that because it's actually through human frailty. It's through human weakness that I am made powerful. And that's why his invitation is to everybody. Deny yourself. Forget yourself. In the Greek, it's really, it's really strong language. It's forget about yourself. See, like, whereas our culture, the teleprompter of our culture says be true to yourself, Jesus says deny yourself. Maybe that is the, the root of our discontentment. Maybe that's, that's our, our prime issue. Be true to yourself. Do you. Live your truth. Jesus comes along and says, no, no, deny yourself. Live with me. I am the truth. That is radically different than the culture, than what the sermon of the culture is telling us. And that's why it's an open invitation, not just information to all. Lay down your personal comfort. Lay down your definitions of success. Lay down the happiness that you think you've defined. And trust me with it. We're having a conversation this week and it's funny, we're talking about like toxic people. Because everybody's toxic now, right? Like everybody you don't want to talk to anymore, they're toxic. This is a season for healing and I'm here for it. So toxic people. Not realizing you're the most toxic person in your life. I'm telling you that because I love you. I am. You disappoint yourself more than anyone else. Okay, can we just like a little bit of gospel humility here? Like this is literally the bad news before the good news. Amen? It's like you are the most toxic person you know. That should really humble us and allow us to actually reckon with the fact that if we're the most toxic person we know and we can't cut ourselves out of our life, that there's got to be something beautiful about denying ourselves, 
Denying the life, denying the definition of right and good and free and all of that. That self-denial is nothing less than practicing the resurrection. Amen? And I love that because Paul in Philippians, he passionately shares his hope and he says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Some of you know him but have not experienced the power of his resurrection. You know why? Because you're still living for self-actualization and not self-denial. And you're wondering where God is. You're wondering why God is not more active and you have yet to lay down control over the little kingdom that you think is the purpose of your life. And Jesus is like, it's so much better than you can imagine. Just let it go. Pick up your cross and let's go. That's the power of the resurrection. Self-denial means letting go of self-determination. Self-denial is nothing less than practicing resurrection. So why does Mark do this? I think Mark does this because he wants to move us from was it real to is it real. Okay, you tracking? He wants us to move from like, oh, historically, this is an interesting thing. Did it happen? Was that real? To is it real? Because if it's not real now, then it didn't happen. And if we're not actually able to understand that self-denial is the way that we practice resurrection, then what we end up doing is we say that we believe the gospel, we say that we've been changed by the transforming power of it, but we don't actually live out the power of the resurrection. So the resurrection, what we celebrate today, is not just hopeful optimism about the future, like things will get better, but it actually pulls the future into the present. It actually pulls restoration, healing into the present. That you and I can actually taste some of it now. Not just wait, well, I hope we get to a better place. It's like, no, no, like Jesus already came to this place to bring the better place in himself for you and me. That's why he came. That's like he brought heaven down. And this is not just a hope of like going to heaven when we die. It's a, it's a foretaste of a renewed creation, a new heaven, a new earth. Everything that is wrong made right. And it pulls that guaranteed future restoration of all things into the present so that you and I can taste it. Sure, not fully, but we can taste it. And we're different because of it. And it starts undoing all sorts of brokenness. It starts undoing shame. It starts undoing the destruction and the decay and the pain that has been brought into our world by sin. As J.R.R. Tolkien writes in The Return of the King, when Gandalf comes back, they're like, Gandalf, you're back. What? Are you still Gandalf the Grey? He's like, nah, I'm Gandalf the White, right? No, anybody? Okay. <laughs> but they say, <laughs> they say to resurrected Gandalf... Is it true that everything sad will become untrue? And they ask him that because that's what he has pulled into the present for them. And Gandalf is just set up for us to see Jesus. N.T. Wright writes this about this exact reality. Watch, it'll be up here. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters. That the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it is only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. 
Easter means that in a world where injustice and violence and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things. And that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. I think the church would be far more focused on our mission if we didn't just sit with the truth of the resurrection in the past, but we practiced resurrection here and now. And I think that that is exactly what N.T. Wright is getting at. If your Christian spirituality leads you to think, I just got to get raptured, naked, out of here, because this world is going to hell in a handbasket, it's the wrong Christian faith. Jesus brought heaven to earth so that we could be a part of it. And light and salt could go out into darkness and decay and bring about renewal and healing and justice and peace. That's what the resurrection does. That's the fuel behind the church. Brothers and sisters, as we go out, that's what resurrection means. That's how we practice resurrection. It's in resurrection that we have a reversal of everything that threatens life. Today we celebrate that death is defanged. But that so is shame and guilt and anger and brokenness and dysfunction and, and hurt and violence and injustice. That there's a renewal of all things. All wrongs will be made right. All wrongs will be untrue in the blinking of an eye. Because of what Jesus started with that empty tomb that morning. So just hear me. Death couldn't hold Jesus that morning because he's the author of life. And resurrection isn't just mere historical speculation. It's not just religious imagination or naive optimism. It's an open invitation to give up our self-rule and acknowledge that God actually has rightful rule. To lay down our control and surrender our life to the one who has given it to us. And I think it's only right to do justice to Mark as we close. To look at how he began his gospel. How he opened up his biography. Because I think that's so important to Mark. He opens it with, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And he finishes with, they left and didn't tell anybody because they were afraid. Mark starts and says it's the beginning of the gospel because God's not done. One commentator I saw this week just kind of burned into my brain. said, just as the tomb will not contain Jesus, neither can Mark's story. And I think that that's what leaps out of the page for us. That he's not done. He's just getting started. That the work of salvation is finished. But that the work of redemption and restoration is just getting started. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not done with you. He's not done with me. He's not done saving. He's not done rescuing. He's not done healing. He's not done sending. He's not done with your pain. He's not done with your hurt, he is not done with death and decay of this world because it's the beginning of the gospel. And just as the story of scripture shows us that God creates out of nothing, he still recreates out of nothing. So we get to come with nothing. We don't have to worry about the raw materials. We just say, recreate me. Make me new. Because he does create out of nothing. That we get a new beginning. And that every day, his grace, his love... His words of who we are as adopted sons and daughters is brand new. He makes something out of nothing. 
He's not stuck with just working with what you are or what you've done or what you bring to the table. He creates something brand new altogether, amen? That's how we practice resurrection. This is what's on offer today. This is what's on offer today and tomorrow and forever. But it starts with our fear. It starts with our fragility. It starts with our need. And it's when we peer into the empty tomb that we can really truly begin to live. So here's the invitation. That today, we deny self, we would forget ourself, we would put it down and we would trust the one who has given us life with it. And then we get to practice that every day. And he promises not to let us down on that. Matthew Cruz wrote a book about the church. He says, what is a church really? It's a bunch of broken people who nearly drowned in their sin, now lying on their backs on the beach, smiling, inhaling the grace of God in the gospel. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to flop on our back and gasp for God's grace. And we're going to plead for more of it. And if you haven't ever accepted that invitation, today is the day. Today's a new day. Because it's just the beginning of the gospel. The gospel is still real. The gospel is still true. And he promises to finish what he started that morning in the empty tomb. Will you stand with me as I pray for us to that end? God, we're so thankful that you're not apathetic. That you don't just create stuff and let it go and hope it turns out. But that you actually enter in. That you would enter into not just human life, but, but pain to the point of death on the cross. But that you would pick your life back up to show us that the worst thing is not the last thing. I pray that that would comfort us in this room this morning. That we would be able to come to, with our fear, with our insecurities, with our guilt, with shame about our past or our present or our last night. And that we would lay that all down and we would flop on our back and we would just gasp and breathe in the grace of the gospel. And that you would breathe new life into us. And that as we go, we would be able to practice resurrection. That we would see renewal happen, starting with us. Newness happen, starting with us. And that that would spread out across our, our families, our communities, our city, our nation, our globe. So I pray now as we sing, as we pray, as we reflect, as we go, as we eat, as we celebrate today, that you would just breathe fresh life into each of us. And that whether it's the first time or the hundredth time, that we would just come with humility and fragility and deny ourselves and accept and receive the life that you have purchased for us. We love you, we thank you, we need you, and we ask all these things in the only name that matters or ever will, in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen.